What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here to discuss Iowa as Michigan State faces the Hawkeyes the second time. This time we'll be in Iowa City on Saturday. Uh, before we begin, I just want to thank all of you who support the show at all the different levels on Patreon and those who give us one-time gifts and those of us who have gone and purchased shirts and hoodies at Nudge Printing by going to our website and going to uh, merchandise. So you can support a show in one of two ways. One is to buy our gear and you can do that by going to the final fours, not in the schedule.com slash merchandise. Or you can give financial gifts to help the show keep going and all this extra content we provide for you. You can do that at thefinalfour.com slash support. And there are many ways to support the show. All right, so we're going to talk about Iowa. The Hawkeyes are 17-11 this season overall with 9-8 in the Big Ten, 44th overall in Ken Palm. Their offense, as usual, is very good. They're number ninth in the nation in efficiency, while the defense is 151st. So not very good, <laughs> to say the least. On offense, one of the yeah, one of the worst in uh, in France history. Yeah, that's saying something. Which right? is saying something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really, 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 really bad. And uh, it's not surprising to me. And I think during the pre pre game or preseason show, I mentioned that I I worry that with them losing the other um, Murray Keegan Murray, not having both of them, yeah. that they would be a lot worse defensively than they were last season. Because I thought last season they were actually kind of okay. Because they had both those guys they were. playing together, yeah. I'm pretty sure they ended up inside the top 100, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is not a given for them. Yeah, you know. So on offense, they are really good at not turning the ball over. Uh, they're eighth in turnover percentage, and they're okay in pretty much everything else. They don't shoot the three real well, uh, only at 33.2 percent, and uh, which is, gives them a 226 ranking, which is pretty bad. And the last two games, and I almost say pretty much on the road, they're pretty miserable. They were been really bad the last two games. They're six for 52 in the last three games, uh, or from three over the last two games. Yeah, it's it's worth noting, as you said, that that came um, in two road games, at Northwestern and at Wisconsin. Um, it's also worth noting that the game at Breslin, they were three for 17, which further buttresses your point about their shooting on the road. I, I did not look at a home road split, but given that I would expect that there's a, a pretty big gap. So this game is at Carver Hawkeye. You don't know how much to put on that, but the fact remains that I think people, you know, it's easy for people to buy into cliches about programs 
you know, and one of them that we have with Fran McCaffrey teams is that they shoot the three. Well, um, this team does not do that. Yeah, they just don't. And so that you have to get out of that mindset. When you talk about Iowa, they're, they're a highly rated offense, but it's not because they're shooting the way you expect them to. Yeah. And I would say, you know, watching the last two games, cause you know, my wife's a huge Hawkeye fan. So we watch all the games and there, it's not like they're going six for 52. They're launching a lot of, uh, you know, force threes or at end of the shot clock. Cause they rarely ever reach the end of the shot clock in their offense. Right. They're, they're getting really good looks. I mean, these are like wide open threes and shooters. You think normally are making them Connor McCaffrey, who, you know, three years ago couldn't hit the side of a barn, but now he's, he's a pretty good shooter. And, you know, Sanford and Chris Murray, I mean, they had all good shooters, I would say missing miserably. And so, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know the, the hoops, a different height for them at the, when they're on the road, <laughs> but they certainly just can't, can't shoot from outside. And they're, and again, they're good looks. And we can probably get into that a little bit more later. Uh, we talk about them, but uh, so they're 89th in, from two. They're 86 in offensive rebounding percentage, which is okay. They're 134th in free throw attempts for uh, per field goal attempts, and so they get the line a decent amount. They're pretty decent there, 74.1 percent. Uh, but of course, the real problem with them is their defense is really disaster. They're as you mentioned before, the third worst for McCaffrey. They're 282nd against twos and 245th against threes. So they don't do well in either of them. Uh, they yeah. don't give up a lot of three-point attempts, which is something to say, I guess. They're not a good defensive rebounding team at 173rd. They don't really force turnovers despite pressing a lot. Um, they don't foul, but that's probably because they're not close to anyone. <laughs> number eight in the nation. The, the pressure stuff, you know, Iowa's press is not designed to really force turnovers. They're, they're looking to make you use clock. Um, that's really the purpose. So it's not surprising. They're not generating much with it in the way of opponent mistakes. Uh, I want to go back to the offense for a second first, because you mentioned they're 80 for 89th from two. Yeah. On offense. Yeah. That's an uptick from the first time that MSU saw them. And I didn't go through man for man to determine what might be responsible for it. But I think I've got an idea. Robracha's field goal percentage. Yeah, it's him. Has gone up by 17% since MSU saw him the first time he was at 40% from the floor going into that game. And he's at 57% now. So it's, it really is one guy. I suspect that's responsible <laughs> for that improvement in terms of efficiency from two. Um, and that's if, if the other guys are just maintaining where they've been like Murray, et cetera. Um, and he's had that kind of uptick. That's, that's pretty remarkable. So this is another game where it's not like where goes out and drops 25 with regularity, but he's become a very steady presence for them and an efficient one. Um, defensively, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they don't do anything well. I mean, except not foul. Yeah. Because it, again, probably not close to people. <laughs> right. That only gets you so far. I mean, they just, they don't have good individual defenders. They don't make up for it with solid team concepts. I, I, I said this before the first game. Um, I would be really impressed if Fran McCaffrey would hire a defensive specialist on his staff because he's been there long enough 
that you just can't escape the reality that for whatever reason, whether it's the recruiting evaluations you're making, your ability to coach it, um, whatever it is, you haven't figured it out. And you can, you can be effective to an extent in the big 10 playing the way that they do. He's proven that because he's gotten that program into a groove now where, and I give him credit for this much, you know, he's had what two years running where he's had massive personnel losses in terms of the significance. Yeah. You know, he loses Luca Garza and a bunch of other guys too. And you got to replace them. And then Chris Murray emerges and then you lose him or not Keegan Keegan Murray. Sorry. And then you lose him and he's almost certainly going to lose, lose Chris Murray after this year. And I'm not betting against him finding somebody else. (laughs) So he's, he's managed and they're, and they're consistently a tournament team now. Mm-hmm. Even in years like I've thought the last couple of years heading into the season that they were heading for down years, and it really hasn't been that way. But at the same time, have they ever seriously been a threat? The one year that they were taken as that was the COVID year and you know Garza's last season. And in all honesty, their record was good, but they were never really, I mean, I never took them seriously as a title threat. I certainly didn't think they were a threat to go deep in March and they haven't. Yeah. And so that's the thing is you could admire as I do what he's done in a job that is not necessarily an easy one. You know, Iowa has some disadvantages that go with it relative to some other big 10 programs in terms of their, um, their natural recruiting territory for starters You know, they don't get the benefit of the doubt. They don't have kids the way, you know, Ohio and Illinois. And although it's a lesser extent than it used to be, it still happens in Michigan where there are big 10 caliber kids in your home state, but that you are just the default favorite for, you know, they don't have very much of that. So it's not an easy place to win. I give him credit for creating a program identity and, of installing a culture and a way of playing that has made them a consistent NCAA tournament participant, but they're never going to have a breakthrough this way. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to use that word. Never. I just don't see it. Um, something would have to change on the defensive end. And by now, you know, I, I always, I always bring up John Beeline as the example of this. And for years and years, I figured he would never do it. And then he did. And it made a difference, you know, when he brought in guys that, that were defensive specialists and it changed his program toward the last few years he was in Ann Arbor. I think Fran McCaffrey could benefit from doing the same thing, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. The one thing too, that I think that holds Iowa back is I think from an athletic standpoint, they are, they struggle trying to compete with other teams. And I think that hurts them defensively. Not, I mean, the, the scheme and your emphasis is the most important part. But I think, you know, sometimes you can have an undisciplined team, but if you have a lot of athletes, you can sort of get by, you know. And they, I think they, they lack that too, which is, you know, makes it harder for them as well. You make an interesting point. And it was, it was the same thing that I think Beeline got tagged with too. So talent identification is a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people think 
It's just about recruiting ranking lists, and he couldn't be further from the truth. John Beeline and and uh, Fran McCaffrey, I suspect, valued similar things because their teams play. It's not that they're running exactly the same offense, but if you look at the general strengths of what they did, low turnovers, generally good shooting teams, even though Iowa really isn't this year. Um, there's certain kinds of skill sets or points of emphasis when they decide who they're going to recruit that I suspect apply at Iowa. You know, Fran McCaffrey is probably not going to be as prone to go after a raw athlete the way that, say, Tom Izzo might. Sure. You know, Tom Izzo has certainly, I mean, we can cite the guys, you know, Brandon Dawson was that super, super athlete, not a guy with highly developed ball skills. And I think you're right that that where it shows up at Iowa, it doesn't show up on the offensive end because even with a less athletic team, just because of their style of play and what they emphasize, they still run. Mm -hmm. They still play fast. But defensively, that's where I think the lack of athleticism shows up. And if you don't have that kind of raw athleticism, then you damn well better have a scheme and a way of teaching defense that allows you to mitigate that. And right. some programs do, you know, Wisconsin has never been blessed with great athleticism, but they're generally pretty solid defensively because they've under Bo Ryan, Dick Bennett, Bo Ryan, and now Greg guard, they know how to teach it. They know how to teach a team concept that, that doesn't leave their individuals who might be less athletic exposed. You know, Iowa's never been able to do that. And I would say, you know, especially looking at last year, again, that their most, most athletic player is Murray. And then, you know, last year was the Murray twins and losing half that made a huge difference. And that's why their defense, right. I think was better last year just because they could just, you know, reacting to balls and deflecting passes and things like that, which are enough to, you know, raise you up in the ranks. And I guess this is to your point too. It shows you that the importance of, unless you're truly like comp- really elite, and even then, you know, you're limited somewhat in your ceiling of how successful you can be in a season. You have to be able to play both ends of the court. You can't just be defense. You can't just be offense, right? You have to be competent. And they're really not very competent in the defensive end. And and you really see it on the road more than anything with, with Iowa. If they can't hit shots, they just get decimated. I think it shows up, especially in the tournament. You can kind of fool yourself a little bit in conference play. Like the, the way that McCaffrey's teams play. In a good year, you know, he could win. He'd go 12 and eight, you know, and in the right year, that might, you know, get you a fourth place finish or a fifth place finish. Right. So that's generally going to mean that you've got a decent seed and, you know, you can, you can start believing that, Hey, we just need that one year in March where we get a lucky break. We get a fortunate draw. Some things break the right way and we have our breakthrough, but I think in general, it is very, very difficult, very difficult to go two weekends deep. If you can't play both ends, Mm -hmm. just because from game to game, you're going to, you're going to be in situations where shots aren't falling, or you're going to be in situations where you're dealing with a really good offensive opponent and you need to be able to do something to limit them, you know, and I think that's been the strength of Tom Izzo's program. And it's not a mystery to me 
how he's been able to have the success in March that he's had, because generally speaking, his teams have been typically balanced and versatile. That's another thing. Can you play different ways and win? I don't know that Iowa has generally proven they can do that as well as you need to, to go on a run in March. You know, you got to be able to win games in the sixties and games in the eighties. If you're going to make a decent run, generally speaking, there are outliers, but they're rare. Yeah. Well, that's certainly something that they have. They really struggle with, uh, you know, as far as Iowa goes, I don't think anyone should expect to see the same Iowa team that we saw back in, uh, back at the Breslin center. This is, this team's going to be shooting much better in this game, uh, almost for sure. Uh, but they are not, I don't know. They're just not, they're not, I think what they were a, a couple weeks ago when they were, when they're winning more games, they're, they're just a team that, that, uh, I don't know how to describe them because I feel like they're, they do th- some things at, at times, but then you can flummox them. Like you'd think a team like Iowa, Northwestern's defense strategy two weeks, two games ago was to double anytime the ball got in the paint, they would, they would double right away. Yeah. And they stopped Robracha from scoring. And as you pointed out, he is their, been their big offensive threat, uh, you know, the last month really uh, consistently. And they also do the same thing with Chris Murray when he tried to get inside as well. And they left shooters open, and then Wisconsin didn't have to double much, but they left shooters open all the time as well as their. Um, and still, <laughs> they couldn't hit anything. So, I don't know. It's it's Jordan Bohannon was. I guess he they've lost him as far as the shooting aspect from last season, but they have guys who I think are, would replace him. You'd expect like Sanford and uh, and Chris Murray, but they they just are not shooting very well. And and Perkins has been much worse than than he was last season as well, which I think has been a problem. You know, the thing with the game in the Breslin Center, to go on another tangent, but it's Euless was really good, and he is that was probably his best game of the season. He looked good for a couple games after yeah. that, but he's kind of reverted back to where he was before then. So, you know, I there are a lot of things for Michigan State, I guess, to pay attention to this game, but Iowa is not a team that you need to be afraid of. One number that leaped out at me from that Breslin game, and I guess I'd forgotten the starkness of it, was... Iowa outshot Michigan State inside the arc 58% to 38%. They had a 20% advantage from two. So how and and most other areas, turnovers, rebounding, et cetera, free throws were very even. Mm-hmm. So how did Michigan State win that game? They won that game because they went eight for 20 from three and Iowa went three for 17. Yep. So it was not very different than a lot of games we've seen this year. We'll return to this in the keys where Michigan state won it because they just outshot the other team from deep, you know, and that's kind of a scary way to live. That's not, that's, uh, that's not something that I suspect makes Tom Izzo feel comfortable. I certainly don't think he wants to count on a repeat of that. <laughs> no, but, but we, we talk about it every single game, how important threes are for Michigan State. That that game was one example of many that illustrate that proposition pretty well, I think, that, you know, they can't count on consistency in certain areas. And if they don't get good performances in those areas, it's going to be down to how well they shoot threes to see if they can overcome it. And that night they did barely. If you remember, that was the yeah, game that one. Iowa came back and, and got a wide open look from Sanford. And then a second attempt that was not as open 
uh, and withstood it, managed to get the victory. The one thing that Iowa does, like I mentioned, is they they do trap quite a bit. A trap, they play a full court press oftentimes, and just depends on the game. And I feel like they they do it more to your point. They don't do it to turn, get turnovers as much. They do, although they do get some, obviously, but they do it more to increase the pace of the play and to move things along faster because they are a much better team in a transition and playing at a fast pace. And that's what they try to do a lot of against Wisconsin. But they didn't really do it to Michigan State at all in the Breslin Center that I recall, maybe a couple possessions. There's a, there's a couple things there. One is, I think you're right that at times they want to speed people up, but that's that's largely, I think, to hope that you get them playing out of their element and force a mistake. And a mistake doesn't necessarily even just have to be a turnover. It can be taking a getting baited into taking a quicker shot. Sure. Than is advantageous, you know. Um, one of the reasons you would think twice about doing that a lot against Michigan State, well, two reasons. One, at least not so much this team, but in terms of program profile, Michigan State likes to play fast and generally they're comfortable playing that way. So trying to speed them up might not be to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is Michigan State has a team, even though early in the season, they struggled a little bit at times with pressure. You know, you think about that Villanova game and, you know, there were some other examples of it, but generally speaking, I think this is a team that's pretty well suited to handle pressure. Yeah. And it's because they have good experienced guards, but then on top of that, they have bigger players, Hauser and Hall, who are very capable ball handlers and passers and can get you out of those traps, you know? So, um, I still think Iowa's primary purpose, though, is, and this makes sense if you're a team that worries about your ability to defend consistently in the half court, if you can make the opponent chew up, you know, say 10 seconds of the clock between getting the ball over half court and then actually getting into any semblance of offense, you've, you've already, you've, you've cut their possession by a third. Sure. Yeah. That's to your advantage. You know, and I think I still think that's primarily what Iowa looks to do with that, as is true for most teams in the Big Ten when they apply pressure. It tends to be selective and it tends to be for that reason, as opposed to, you know, Nolan Richardson, 40 minutes of hell stuff, which nobody does in the Big Ten. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody do it because there'll be a new coach who will come in to the (laughs) league and decide that he's going to play the way he's always played. Fran McCaffrey was one of those guys. Um, and they find out very quickly, you can't do it in the big 10. You can't live that way. Guards are too good. Coaching's too good. Am I misremembering, but I feel like Tom Davis pressed a whole lot. He is the last guy. He would be the last man standing. I think who played that as, as, um, a general MO and, there was more of it. There was certainly more of it in the big 10 in the eighties and nineties. And you're, you're absolutely correct. Dr. Tom did, did a lot of that. Um, but you know, I think, I just think it's, it's faded away from college basketball in general. You do not see pressure. When I think about what it was like when I was growing up, there were a lot of teams that played that way. Yeah. You know, I mentioned Nolan Richardson. His Arkansas teams were built around that. Um, Target, UNLV, often used very, very intense, very physical pressure. 
There were a lot of examples of this back in the day, but you don't see it anymore, just as you don't see consistent zone defenses. You'll see teams play zones at spots, but not the way they used to. You know, and it's just the game, the game has changed and there are good reasons for it. But I think in the Big Ten, honestly, the main reason is when people try it, they tend to get shredded. The most recent example would be Brad Underwood. His first couple of years at Illinois, he figured out, okay, I can't play this way and survive. It won't work. And he hasn't ever since. Do you think largely this is this is due to the fact that, well, one, maybe is that maybe players are even bigger players are better ball handlers than they used to be. There's more of an emphasis on that. There's that. And then also the fact that the three point shot has made it so that you're, you put yourself at jeopardy, giving up wide open threes in transition or, and that punishes you, which is why the zone has gone away for the large part too. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, those are, those are all very good points. And I think that's all part of it. In addition to what I mentioned about generally the caliber of guard play and the kind of scouting that you get and preparation that you get from coaches at the big 10 level. Um, but, uh, but those are also good points too, that you have more versatility, more guys with developed ball skills now, and you have to worry about giving up a lot of wide open threes. If teams are beating your pressure and, and that's a problem, you know? So I think all of those things combine and it's absolutely true that last part, about the the importance of the three-point shot in terms of taking zones away. I mean, look, in the old days, you know, like back back in the Stone Age when I used to play um, <laughs> in high school, you know, there wasn't a three-point shot. So zones made a lot more sense. You know, you say, okay, a guy shoots, say, 35% on a 20-foot shot. That's good defense. That's good defense to have a guy taking that shot as opposed to somebody taking a shot around the rim where maybe they're 50%. Sure. Right. Yeah. Cause they're, they all count the same, but the math changed. And, and the fact is you be that it used to be that the, what you talked about with zones was you can get somebody out of a zone by proving that you can hit enough outside shots that that math starts to change for them. But the introduction of the three-point shot just absolutely decimated that thinking because it was obvious now you didn't even have to shoot threes, you know, amazingly well. You just had to shoot them competently, you know, and it would it would be a problem to continue playing a zone where you're giving up those shots on a consistent basis. You look at it, we won't go this any further, but, you know, looking at like the four corners offense where you have no shot clock. Uh, also the change of the game with the three point shot and how all these things. And, and it, I was just talking to my wife and I, she didn't remember this because I don't think she paid much attention to basketball when she was a kid. But I mean, I remember when it was always one in one when there was no double bonus. And so that's right. You'd have, I mean, you start fouling that's people right. with seven minutes left in the game. If you're down 20 points, cause you might come back and win, <laughs> you know what I mean? You could really, uh, and cause and with the shot clock. Yeah. There's so much. They are, it is a different sport in so many important ways. You know, I'm old enough to remember uh, one of the greatest basketball innovations of the 60s and 70s was the four corner offense that uh, <laughs> Dean Smith put together at North Carolina. So, if we've got listeners that are too young to remember, this is pre shot clock. He would have one guy kind of in the middle 
and then uh, four guys in each of the corners in the half court, and they just hold the ball and just run clock. And you would frequently see it. Teams would take if if you go back and you see there's it's not that there's a ton of video available, but there is some of games from say Magic's era at Michigan State. Teams would do that. You would you would get to like the five six minute mark of the second half. And one team might decide to just start holding the ball (laughs) and they were going to make you foul them to stop the clock. You had no other choice, but to give up fouls because they were just going to run clock and you would see teams do it run two minutes, three minutes off the clock in one possession. And, you know, so it's a different game strategically, you know, it had, but I think a lot of those things obviously were for the better. I, I don't think the lack of a shot clock was a good thing. Yeah. Remarkably, there, there still isn't one in high school basketball in the state of Michigan, which is pretty remarkable that it's gone on this long. You can run the four uh, quarters, without right? One. Yeah, you could. Actually, you I, could. Thought, I feel you, like I saw some video clip of some game that ended four to two. I don't know if that was in Michigan or some other state. Where they- yeah, there are still some. St- a lot of states have adopted the shot clock now, but Michigan is one that that hasn't uh, as of yet. Uh, it doesn't always uh, you don't see it as a consistent problem, certainly from what I've observed, but it is possible to do that. And, you know, even if it's not as extreme as I described, let's say, let's say you're in a tie game with a minute and 10 left. Well, at any other level of basketball, you know, that each team it's not decided because each team's going to get their chance to score. Right. Right. In that scenario, uh, most likely. In, in a game without a shot clock, and I, and I have seen this certainly many times, the team who's in possession in that situation is just going to hold for one shot. They're like, screw it. We'll hold it for a minute, and we'll make sure that the worst we get out of here with is overtime. Yeah. You know, that's – whereas if you're, you're in a college game in that situation and you've got the ball with a minute 10 left, you got to score because you know the other guys are going to get their chance. Right. So anyway, well, different you know, game. Yeah, absolutely. And you know where you only have one shot? It's keep making sure your gutters work, Rod. <laughs> you want to make sure they don't leak and that they run or function properly because it can cause all kinds of problems to the side of your house, outside your yard, your roof itself. You can, And so you want to make sure you have the right people doing your gutter work. And that's why we have one of the great sponsors for our show is Brothers That Just Do Gutters. Kurt Stauffer and his team over in West Michigan will repair your gutters. They will clean them out. They'll put the leaf guards on, whatever you need. They'll even replace the entire thing, whatever you need done. And they'll do it basically any time of the year. So you might think it's not gutter season, but it is. It's always gutter season for Kurt and his team. So if you're on the west side of the state, that's Grand Rapids area, as far west as Lakeshore, down to... uh, down to Saugatuck, up to Rockford, over to Lowell. That's sort of the main region. Get a hold of Kurt and his team. They all do a great job. They did great work on my house, and so I know they can do it for you as well. That's Kurt Stauffer at K-U-R-T dot S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R at brothersgutters.com. There'll be links to that in the show notes here on your podcast player and on the website. Make sure you get his team a call. Mention Final Four, and he'll get 10% off your uh, quote. So make sure you do that today before you have a big mess in the spring because spring is coming, which is great, but with spring comes rain and lots of rain and lots of wetness. All right. So let's talk about the gutters. (laughs) Let's talk about the starters brought to you by gutters that just do uh, gutters. Uh, First is Connor McCaffrey, 6'6", elder 
brother, a senior who doesn't make many mistakes. He's very good. Um, as for assists, he's got 95 assists with just 23 turnovers. I think going to the game last night, he'd had 18 assists in a row without any turnovers. And then, of course, he promptly turned the ball over. He's averaging 6.7 points a game on 40, 34, and 93 shooting. And he's big guy, 6'6", so he definitely pulls down his share of rebounds, averaging about four a game. He's an effective player in some ways. Just He's so bad defensively that yes. it cancels a lot of this stuff out. But, man, on the offensive end, yeah, he just – he just doesn't make mistakes. And he's been among the nation's leaders in assist to turnover ratio basically his entire career at Iowa. Um, the shooting is okay. Not spectacular, but 34%. He's certainly good enough that you have to guard him. You right. know, you, you're not necessarily, even with their shooting where it's been the last couple of games. Um, you still don't feel great if he's getting totally open looks, you know, you want to run him off the line, force him to try to do some things off the dribble where he's not as capable. Um, but you know, he's an experience. Obviously it's the cliche, right? His coaches, son, he really plays like one, um, an intelligent game, generally speaking. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, it, but the defensive weaknesses are a problem. He is a fantastic passer. He's a ba uh, baseball player, and I don't know if he's even may maybe a better baseball player than he was a basketball player, but he, he can not only pass a does long he play ways. Does he, he doesn't play baseball for Iowa, does he? He did for a number of years. I don't think he played this last really? year or two. Yeah, oh. oh, yeah. He's really well, I good I didn't know that. Player. Yeah, he's a really good baseball player. That um, And then uh, that he can feed the post, and this is why he had so many assists, right? He was feeding to Garza, but he was so good and yeah. clever at getting the bounce passes. And I mean, you could say, well, anyone could throw it to Garza and he's going to score and you're going to get an assist, but he was just so good at feeding him the ball. So he's great with entry post uh, passes. They don't have, and Rubracha has been effective that way too because of him. I don't, yeah, I don't think that's an anybody can do it kind of thing. The fact of the matter is those guys are usually made better by guards who can execute post feeds on time and in the right spot. Meaning they're they're hitting them. If if you watch post battles, oftentimes a guy will will get the position that he wants established for a beat or maybe two beats, but he can't necessarily hold it forever. Right, right. So if you have a guard who's not hitting them at the right time, hitting them in the hands where they want the ball, so they can go right into their move quickly. All those things are important. And so, yeah, somebody like McCaffrey is it's it's not just, well, anybody could do what he does. I don't believe that. Next would be Aaron Euless, 6'3 junior. He started 13 games this season. He's averaging 6.8 points a game on 41, 31 and 73 shooting third in the team in assists with 64 uh, with just 31 turnovers. And he torched Michigan State at the Breslin. He was actually their, their best player probably for Iowa that game. Yeah, he was their leading scorer. I think he had 17. Um, which kind of came out of the blue because obviously by his seasonal numbers, you don't expect that kind of outburst. Um, yeah, he's, you know, generally speaking, I mean, he's all right. Uh, not a bad player, but I, I remember coming away from that game feeling very disappointed about the job that I did not think Michigan State's guards played well in that game. And I don't think they did a good job of dealing with him. Yeah, he was able to really get around screens and and cut people off and 
there was not much help on the backside once he would get penetration. It was very weird because he's a player who is, as you said, he's okay. <laughs> he's he's not someone who should be torturing you though. It's, it was really right because he doesn't do it to right. many people. So that's and probably his his point his uh, point average is a little bit higher elevated just because of that Michigan State game. Uh, next would be Tony Perkins, six four junior guard. Uh, he did not get much better this season from a scoring standpoint or really any point. Uh, he's averaging a little under 12 points a game on 42, 29, and 77 shooting, 68 assists, but 20, 45 turnovers. And so he is. Um, he will have games where he's really good, and then he'll have yeah. a number of games where he's sort of just disappears and is not very and not doing much. Well, you you correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Perkins is at his best and is a problem for people when he's able to play downhill a little bit. Always. So yes. either to get to the rim or get to a mid range shot, seems to me that's where he's effective. His three point shooting has been down this year, which has sort of held him back. Cause I, I thought he was, I mean, I expected Chris Murray to, to be their best player. That was not a surprise, but I thought Perkins was the guy who seemed on track to be making a breakthrough as well and take that next step up. And he's really only maintained, and you could argue he's actually been worse because he's been less efficient than he was a year ago. He was really good for them down the stretch last year. Yeah, the the last six to eight games of the season, including the Big Ten tournament, give you a give you a sort of false idea of what that team was because they were just playing at a blistering pace. They were really really good, right? And they were just playing above you know what they were most they of the got season. hot, right? Yeah. They were hot. They were just a hot team, and they hit the tournament at the right time. And I think he was, he was part of that too. He's a guy, if you can keep him from out getting down to like 10, 12 footers, you know, he, that's what, yeah. that's his favorite shot where he comes down and, and attacks. If you leave him just as a jump shooter, he's, I mean, he will hit one occasionally, but he's not going to probably, he's the kind of guy who's going to hit one. If there've been two other threes have been hit, you know, in succession and he's the third right. one, right? Maybe like a Hogard, right. like a guy, you're not going to worry about the line, but you know, like that one he took, Hogarth took in the second half against Indiana. You kind of knew that was going in because they'd hit four in a row. Right. And, you know, he's, he's inevitable. Uh, next would be Chris Murray. He's the identical twin, the mirror twin, as we learned. He's the lefty. That's where Keegan's the righty. Uh, he's the, definitely the best player. He's averaging 20 points a game on 50, 34, and 75 shooting, eight rebounds a game, and a little over a block a game. He was totally stymied in the game against Wisconsin. He, he was partly because of shot because of foul trouble early, but it's, he was just kind of out of it, the game and they just did a good job doubling him whenever he got the ball and preventing him from doing anything. And then, then I don't know, the team just couldn't shoot. And, and he was part of that problem as well. So it was not with lack of, it was not with lack of opportunities, just a lack of execution, I guess. He was, he was two for 10 from the floor. He was one for five from two and one for five from three uh, for five points. That's gotta be a season low. It has to be. Yeah. Um, Thing is, Michigan State did a pretty good job on him at the game at Breslin. He yep. only scored 11. He was 5 for 13 from the floor. So they did a similar thing to what Wisconsin did, not just in limiting his efficiency, but limiting the number of shots. Because I think I think they want to have him, you know, ideally they want to have him probably more around, you know, 15, 16, 17 shots, or at a minimum, getting in the mid teens and shots from the floor and then getting to the line with more frequency. And he didn't shoot any free throws against Wisconsin. And I think he, I can't remember for sure. I think he shot, I think he might've had one free throw 
against Michigan State. Yeah, not many. So anyway, um, that that they did a good job, and and the thing about we'll return to this in the keys, but Michigan State is a team that's better equipped than most, I think, to guard him, at least from a physical perspective. But he's but at the same time, look, the guy's averaging 20 and eight for a reason. He's pretty good. And he's <laughs> yeah. a true three. He's a true three level scorer. I mean, I think they expected I expected he'd be a little bit better from three. His three point shooting has taken a hit as yep, the season's gone has, on. Yeah. Um, and that was a real strength. He was better than Keegan from three last year, right? Yeah, he, well, he's been a better shooter in general. Volume. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think so. But but it started to nosedive lately. And so um, you just got to hope for Michigan State that it stays down for one more afternoon. I can tell you at, at uh, Carver-Hawkeye, it'll be better. <laughs> but yeah, because um, yeah, like the rest of the team, and this is like a, you know, a Jekyll and Hyde team that they are, they are different on home and, and on the road. Uh, finally, Philip Ravacha, 6'9", senior, came from North Dakota a couple years ago. He's second in both scoring at 13.8 points a game and rebounding at 7.8 rebounds a game, shooting 57, 33, and 65, and leads the team with 31 blocks. He's a really just solid player. He can run the floor real well for them. He can play the post. He rebounds well. He gets offensive boards occasionally, and he's he's very he's not going to be effective outside of eight, 10 feet, but he's going to, when he's inside, he's, he can hurt you if you let him get position on you. Yeah. And it'll, you know, it'll be an interesting thing for Michigan state because they're coming off a game where I think they feel like their two, five men played pretty well yep. together in terms of the defensive job. They did the job they did on the boards and then giving them just a little bit of scoring. This is a challenge that on paper doesn't seem nearly as daunting as a lot of what they've faced, you know, but, when you watch, or at least when I watch Robracha play, I'm pretty impressed. Um, he's not, you know, he's not the the kind of um, talent or high, high, high motor guy that a Trace Jackson Davis is. He isn't the behemoth that guys like you know Dickinson and Edie are. But he just he's got a nice post skill set. And he knows how to use his body. He knows how to use angles. He generally plays within himself. And you can be really effective just with those tools, even if you're not a superstar. And I think, you know, he's he's slotted into that really good middle class of Big Ten big men. You know, I would I would put him in a category with guys like Danger at Illinois. And um, when he's healthy, Zed Key at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And um uh, you know, there are certainly, there are certainly others too, who would, uh, who would fit into that category. Derek Walker at Nebraska is another example where they don't, they're not the headline guys, but you look up and game in game out, they're producing. Yeah. There's a big drop off when he leaves the game. And I think defensively, he's pretty good too, um, as well. Uh, so finally we'll go to the reserves, start with Peyton Sanford. He's the one we talked about before who missed those two threes at the end of the game to Iowa six, seven sophomore. He had just, he was miserable shooting prior to the big 10 season, starting even the first couple of games, the big 10. And then he turned it off, turned it around and was shooting the lights out. And now he's kind of back, back more to average. Uh, But he's definitely more lethal than he was early in the season. He's averaging a little under 10 points a game on 40, 32 and 82 shooting. 
two for nine from three over the last two games, but you know, that's actually pretty good for this team. <laughs> the last yeah. two games. Uh, and yeah, he's, he's definitely true. become more of a threat from two than he has been in the past than he was earlier this season. And he's all, and that's, I think exhibited by the fact that he's getting four rebounds a game where he's kind of getting in, in the tussle a little bit more. Well, he's a guy, whatever the numbers tell you, he's a guy that you worry about on a one game in a one game scenario, because he's certainly capable of, you know, a four for six. Oh yeah. From three kind of afternoon. I mean, that's entirely possible heading into the first Michigan state game. He had been on a run where I think he'd been 13 for his last 26. So he'd really gotten hot Then he didn't shoot the ball well against Michigan state. And as you say, he's kind of, he's kind of bounced around his, his seasonal average is right where it was in the first Michigan state game, 32%. So it hasn't budged. So that tells you that there's been some fluctuation up and down, but the the bottom line is he has not had the kind of year shooting the ball. I think they expected. I, I would have expected hey, this is a high thirties, forties guy, you know, and he hasn't been that, but as you point out, he has at least started to show some progress in terms of developing other areas of his game, but he's an important guy because they've shrunk their bench. I mean, the last time we did this, I had, uh, I Bowen had five guys gone. Yeah. Bowen and the other big kid, uh, Mulvey. You gone to lay. No, 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 oh, not him. Or Marvy or Marley or something like that. Mulvey. Yeah. Mulvey, yeah. He's hardly um, played. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys aren't playing anymore. So Fran has shrunk the bench recently. Well, he got his other son back, Patrick McCaffrey. We'll just talk to him talk about him next. You know, six, nine junior. He was, uh, he had left basketball for eight games just for anxiety issues, trying to get his head right. And he's back. He's, he started a number of times this season. He's uh, going playing about 20 minutes a game, averaging 10 points a game and three and a half or 3.7 rebounds a game, shooting 39, 33 and 77. And is a guy who will never, uh, I guess, wow you with his athleticism, but he's the kind of guy who's just shifty and sort of finds angles to get opportunities to score. When, when he's at his best, and I don't think he's been at his best since coming back. I agree. You know, he's, he's been coming off the bench, but um, he's been okay. And they'd certainly rather have him than not. Don't get me wrong, but at his best, he's a tough cover because he's a, he's been a reasonably good jump shooter in his career, but he's six, nine. So he's got enough size and enough craftiness that he can manufacture points for himself around the basket. He's a good decision maker, decent ball handler for a guy his size. You know, he's, he's got ball skills is the best way of putting it. And when you put ball skills with a six, nine body, that, that can do some damage. Um, he's playing more lately. So it feels to me like they're, they're ramping. He played 20 minutes last night against Wisconsin. So it feels like they're ramping him back up to playing a bigger role. Um, and you're probably right. If you have him, you don't have to play as many people. Yeah. I, and he is definitely best driving and scoring, you know, that that's how he, that's how he attacks you. It's not really the jump shooting, although he has that in his back pocket. He does. That's not how he's going to get going in a game. Uh, finally, Josh sticks six, five freshman, He's definitely been playing a lot more. He's just a sniper. He averages 2.2 points a game on 39, 39, and 67 shooting. And much like Peyton Sanford and really the entire Iowa team, but especially these two, their home away splits have got to be pretty significant because he is pretty good at Carver Hawkeye, and he's 
mostly invisible on the road. Yeah. But just a, the kind of guy that when you see him, I would imagine you could have identified him in high school pretty easily and looked at him. So that guy looks like an Iowa guard. Cause that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. six, five white guy, not got good ball skills, not tremendously athletic, you know, just that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, low volume shooter though. He's not taking a lot of shots, whatever the efficiency has been home versus away. He, he's generally not getting a lot of shots up. I would say he is a guy like Bates from Indiana where you could, you wouldn't be shocked if he went say three or four from uh, right. at, in Iowa city. And you're like, who is this guy? And that's, he's the guy, the guy who might pull that on you. Uh, even though you're not, right. be, you wouldn't be expecting it. If you just leave, leave him alone. All right. Well, let's go to the five keys of the game brought to you by nudge printing right after this. There's no I in team, but there is one in indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. All right, the five keys of the game brought to you by Nudge Printing. I encourage you to go to nudgeprinting.com and you can use the code FINAL4 at checkout to get 20% off your purchase. They have all kinds of great gear. I have a bunch of it. It's really comfortable, high quality screen printed gear, both uh, I've got some t-shirts. I've got a great hoodie. That's actually our logo with the, for the show. Uh, you can't go wrong with this stuff. It ships right away. I got mine. I ordered it and I got it like two days later. They also have all kinds of other things like car decals and wall, wall decals for like fatheads, uh, which I think you said you got some rod. You said that it was pretty cool and pretty good stuff. Yep. So great for like your house or your dorm room or whatever. Uh, they're also decals for like your cornholes. So if you have that for your tailgating, it's a great opportunity to get that there. Lots of five-star reviews. I mean, that over a thousand, I think they said it was 600, but it's more than that. Everything you go to, everyone loves their stuff. Um, they have all the vintage stuff as well. So if you want to get some old vintage gruff Sparty stuff, you can get that stuff there. And then all kinds of other schools in Michigan outside of the University of Michigan. So Central, Eastern, Western, Northern, Michigan Tech, Wayne State, Oakland, whatever. They've got most of that stuff and you can get other shirts and uh equipment there if you need it. Also, you can get other schools in the country as well. So head on over to nudgeprinting.com. Take advantage of the 20% off by entering Final Four into the coupon code at checkout. All right. So the five keys of the game. The first one is 
we've been having a lot more of these just single players, but it's because they're sort of the the, folk, the key for the uh, these other teams. And the first is Chris Murray. So he's had a terrible game against Wisconsin, five points. And as you mentioned before, he was fairly limited at Michigan State. 11 points from him is a pretty quiet night. So, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? How are you going to stop him? And uh, and I would say the one thing about him that probably contributes to him sometimes where you can limit what he does is he's not a guy who's going to force the action too much. And so if you are, if you do a good job making it not easy for him to get open shots, he's not going to, he's not going to really push the, push the uh, issue much and like, you know, try and draw fouls and stuff to get himself going. Right. And, and this is where I think Michigan state benefits from having uh, some personnel that's maybe a little different than some other teams. Not every big 10 team has guys physically who can match up with somebody like, like Murray. Um, you know, even though he's, he's the foreman. And so a pure man to man matchup might suggest that, um, that Joey Hauser would guard him. And I think he will see some time on Murray, but I really like the fact that Michigan state has guys like AJ Hogarth and Malik call that you can run at him as well, you know, and you could do some mixing and matching. You could have Joey guarding say Connor McCaffrey, you know, and that would make sense because Connor McCaffrey is not a guy who's really equipped to, um, to exploit Joey defensively. It's not like you're asking Joey to guard, um, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, a, a quicker, a quicker, yeah, he's not going to blow past you point right. guard. Right. So you can do some of that mixing and matching, which means it doesn't have to be Joey on, on Chris Murray. It could be Malik call. It could be AJ Hogarth. It could even be Jaden Akins. Um, so I think they'll run a lot of guys at him, but I like, and that doesn't mean the Michigan state shuts them down, but I, I do think Michigan state has the flexibility and the capability to put better physical matches against him than some other teams would in the conference. Um, but he's a tough cover. We know that. And it's, it's not likely that we'll see him held down as well as they did in the first game. I think the key is just, you want to make it whatever he gets, you want to make it to be an inefficient performance. That's really the key. Yeah. And I think, you know, we look at Michigan state and people always are upset about the five position and that we're not quite as strong at the five, but I think, you know, if your best player is your three or four, Michigan State is really well equipped to defend that player. And that's yep. probably most teams Agreed. except for the Big Ten, right? The Big Ten has unusual sort of yep. concentration of that's right. very effective fives. Right. And so it's it's actually makes the, the one little, when I don't, I don't say little deficiency, but it's a deficiency that probably doesn't matter in most leagues, makes it stand out more in, in the Big Ten. Well, just look, look around in the ACC and the Big 12. I mean, look at the Big 12 in particular which supposedly is the best league in the country. Um, tell me how many five men there are that even match what, say, the fifth best guy in the Big Ten does at that position. It's just a different game. And, and you're right. Michigan State is better equipped to deal with a team like this in many ways than they are a lot of other Big Ten teams because of that. Yeah, they'd have trouble in the ACC because, you know, is that where Ryan Young ended up? Is that where the, yeah. <laughs> the one that Michigan State let get away. Uh, all right, so number two, the second defensive, uh, sorry, the second key to the game is defensive rebounding. 
Iowa is a good offensive rebounding team. Uh, we've seen that both with Chris Murray and Rebracha. And then the other guys are pretty scrappy. I wouldn't see even um, the guards have to be very careful too, because Tony Perkins can get in there too uh, and get some rebounds. Yeah. And, and this is something that's become a bit of a staple for Fran's program is that they've generally been pretty, I mean, obviously having someone like Luca Garza for three years uh, certainly helped. Um, or was it four? Did they get four years? Yeah, they, did they get oh, yeah, four he, years out of yeah, him? Yeah, he didn't go early, no. They got four years out of him. Yeah, so having a guy like that certainly helped, but they've continued to do it. Um, it's Offensive rebounding is an important part of what they do, and and it's it's interesting because it's pretty unique to have a team that both limits their mistakes and rebounds effectively on the offensive end. They just, those two things just don't seem to go hand in hand, but they do for Iowa. Michigan State, despite all the moaning and groaning coming out of the Michigan game, and I get it, it was frustrating to watch, but you have to, when you start talking about, oh, well, he exposes Michigan State to worst rebounding team of the Izzo era, and they physically can't match these teams. Well, then you're telling on yourself because <laughs> it's not the worst rebounding team of the Izzo era. It's the worst offensive rebounding team of the Izzo era. That's true. But defensively, they've been solid all year. And believe it or not, entering this game, they are in the top 25 in the country in defensive rebounding percentage. And that's in a league where, as we were just talking about, they are generally facing high-quality big men night after night after night. So that is a real number. That's a number you could put some stock in, you know, in terms of what it's telling you. Um, there have been just enough nights where the defensive rebounding has gone by the boards, no pun intended, <laughs> um, to, uh, to be concerned about it. But generally speaking, Michigan State has answered the bell in that area more often than not. They need to do that here. Iowa's not a good shooting team, and if they are struggling to make shots in this game, even at home, um, you're giving them a gift if you're letting them get second chances. And so MSU has to do the same kind of job that we saw them do against Indiana. You know, that's the kind of performance that, that we need. And, and look, Iowa is an effective offensive rebounding team, but physically, this is not a team with anyone who is overwhelming. You know, Michigan State's had that problem at times where, you know, in the Michigan game, Terrace Reed, they just, they didn't have a good physical matchup for him at that point in the game. You know, um, we've seen it with the job that somebody like Zach Eady's done against them. I, I don't look at this Iowa team as a group that physically could overwhelm Michigan state, it's going to be about Michigan state doing the job, locating, uh, opposing players, putting a body on them and then getting after the ball. You know, it's the simple things that they've got to execute, yeah. but there's, there's nobody on Iowa who just, you know, who should be able to make those, you know, fifth percent, you know, 95th percentile plays where like, like somebody like Zach Eady does where he's seven feet four. So he's just bigger than you are, you know, and he can yeah. get to the ball before you do. That's not Iowa. So Michigan state should be equipped to do the job. 
they're not gonna have the guy who's gonna have a put back dunk and things like that. This that's not how they roll. Right. And so yeah, right. it's gonna be if Michigan gets out rebounded on the offensive end, it's because they're it's an effort issue. You know, I think that's you know energy or or technique. They just yeah weren't, sure they weren't doing a good job of you know or you know and and it's always possible that Iowa just comes in and out. Now it's worth mentioning. I think this is gonna be Iowa's third game in six days. Is that possible? Could be. Yeah, they played. Yeah. Is that right? Did they play Sunday? They played Sunday, yeah. So Sunday, yeah, so that's correct. So third game in six days. So even the fact that they're at home, maybe there'll be an energy issue. Yeah. And uh that might help Michigan State here. And it was you a lot hope. of travel between those games as well. They were they were both on the road. Um the first two games. That's right. They were at Northwestern, at Wisconsin, and now back home. Yeah. yeah. The previous game was against Ohio State, so that's a game you can kind of almost take off. But um, ah. So third key to the game, the threes. Michigan State won the first game, as you mentioned before, because they had 15 more points from three than Iowa did. Michigan State's a top uh, 25 three-point shoot team shooting nationally at 37.5%. The question is, you know, can they shoot that well on the road? And, I, you know, they have not been as great on the road recently. And so, you know, it's going to be a key for their offense, obviously, to get the points. I, I want to correct myself. Michigan State, talking about the defensive rebounding, they're a top 50. Right. They were top 25 not, earlier. Yeah. Not top 25, but still good. Yeah. Um, they are a top 25 three-point shooting team. And <laughs> look, we talk about it every single game, right? Um, they don't have to shoot 50% from three to win, but they've got to be productive. They got to be productive in terms of the number of shots they're getting and the percentage that they're hitting. They go, they will go hand in hand. You know, if they're, if they're four for nine from three, I don't think that's a success. You know, they need volume. Um, and they need to have an advantage here. You know, I certainly think, They've got a reasonable chance to do a lot better from two than they did in the first game at both ends of the court. I wouldn't expect a 20% shooting difference between the two teams in this one. <laughs> yeah. But, but even having said that, I think Michigan state needs to have an edge here. If, if I was able to stay mostly even, or God forbid out shoot them from three, it could be a long day. Yeah. Fourth key to the game is guard play. Not great guard play in the first game. We mentioned, you know, Aaron Euless just tore him to pieces. Uh, defensively, Michigan State really had a lot of problems. And um, they just have to be better. I mean, I think they're playing better, so I would expect that they're going to not allow well, that sort of same thing to happen again. And their gap and their gap coverage has to be better, too, when there is someone who gets by the guard. Yeah, this, this was a game that was right in the beginning stages, if I remember correctly, of that period where A.J. was not playing well. Hit the junior wall. <laughs> yeah, he hit the junior wall. Um, he only had seven points against Iowa, but it was more than that. It's he just was not wasn't doing the job defensively that we normally see. He wasn't uh, initiating, creating offense, and he certainly wasn't scoring. Um, they don't need to quite be on the level they were against Indiana, but Michigan State's guards on paper have a decisive edge versus Iowa's. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And they need to actually play that way. They need to bring that advantage to the court because, you know, if you look realistically, Iowa at the four and the five with Murray and Rebracha, 
they've got an edge over Michigan State, certainly in terms of what you'd expect from a production standpoint, right? Right. You know, Joey Hauser can maybe keep it close scoring-wise with Murray. That's possible. But more than likely, Robracho is going to outscore Michigan State's five men. So you've got to make that up. And Michigan State has the guard play to carve out an advantage versus Iowa's guys, but they've got to actually do it. And the first game, I don't think they did. And finally, the fifth key to the game, turnovers. Michigan State got a, caught a break last game, or the f- first matchup where the uh, Iowa committed 13 turnovers. They tend to turn the ball over, not surprisingly, like everything we talked about with Iowa. They're much worse on the road. They tend to throw the ball around a little bit yeah. more. Uh, it's unlikely that's yeah. going to happen again. Right. I don't think you can count on 13 turnovers again. So for Michigan state, it, you know, and they, and look, they've, they're still, I think top 70, I think they were 68 in turnover percentage coming into this game. So they're still on track as one of the best teams as has ever had in that regard. Um, very much so. So it's been one of those things kind of like the defensive rebounding where every once in a while, They'll have a game that'll pop up, you know, uh, and, you know, and it's a rough night, but by and large, their performance has been pretty solid. It needs to be that again in this game. If it's, if it's like, a, you know, 10, seven advantage in turnovers for Iowa, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You can survive that most likely what you don't want. You don't want five, six, seven and Michigan state with a high number. That's where that's where it becomes a problem because again, you know, I was not as we've said, I was not a very good shooting team, but if they're if they've got an advantage in turnovers, and they're also getting second chances via offensive rebounds, they can make up that difference just through volume, and so it's important to minimize that in both those areas. Well, Ken Palm has Iowa's a two point favorite, which means these teams are basically even. Because I think it's like two to three points, isn't a home home court advantage most uh, matchups. So uh, evenly matched te- teams is kind of like a pick 'em on a neutral court. Uh, I would expect Michigan State to be playing pretty well. I think Iowa's going to be playing better than they have recently, and so the, and so Michigan Michigan State, as usual, they're going to have to play well to beat Iowa. They're not going to be able to walk through this game and, and defeat Iowa. Yeah, I mean, look, any any road game is is tough in this league. Now, I, I haven't paid – I've certainly seen Iowa play multiple times at home, but you'd have a better sense than I do. My sense is that the home court crowd is maybe not what it once was at Iowa. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say the home court at Iowa has not been what it once was maybe 20 years ago. Like I right. think when Steve Alford was there, it was good. And ever since he left, I mean – they. Like the look ladder years were, you know, disaster right. from, stamp from students. But I think aside from like a couple of games this season, like, you know, the Illinois game was really good. I think partly because of all that crazy stuff with the orange crush and then they gave yeah. a bunch of tickets and stuff. And that's uh, a rivalry they, game anyway. It is. Yeah. In some respects. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I mean, looking at like Northwestern, I mean, I feel like Northwestern suddenly is like, it has a home court advantage and I don't think they've had yeah. a home court advantage for many Ever. years. And now they've Ever. decided like, not, I mean, partly it's because they're better, I suppose, but partly it's they've decided to emphasize and just saying, hey, let's just give these tickets right. to, you know, students as opposed to, you know, <laughs> just random people who buy them. Uh, but so I think, you know, Iowa is 
it, when things are going well for Iowa, the, the arena will get loud. But yeah, it does not get as loud as it does. If you watch Iowa wrestling, that place will be rocking, which is, I know, crazy to us who are not yeah. big wrestling fans. But yeah, basketball is not the same. It's not that people don't like basketball. They like it a lot. It's just not, you know, it's not football and it's not wrestling. <laughs> My point in this is that, um, look, it's hard to win any game on the road, but Iowa is, you know, I, I put it in the same category as places like uh, Chrysler Arena and Value City, you know, in Columbus, where I you're playing on the road, so that means you're at a disadvantage for sure, but it's not the heavy disadvantage that you find in other places. When you go to Mackey Arena, when you go to whatever they call it, State Farm in Champaign, when you go mm-hmm. to Assembly Hall in Indiana, in Indiana um, these places, there's a real, it's, it's more than just, oh, we're away from home. It's you're in somebody else's home and you got a problem. I mean, that's how it feels. And I don't feel like Carver Hawkeye is that level of building Whereas once upon a time, it maybe seemed closer to that. Um, during that era, we were talking about a while ago, like the Tom Davis era or the George Raveling era when they first opened the building. Um, it felt different than it feels to me now. And that's, and that's again, that's even with Fran, I think, you know, having established them as a consistent NCAA tournament level team. So it's not as if they've been watching you know, horrible basketball and they play, you know, whatever you think about the way that they play. And I certainly have my criticisms at the very least, you would say, even for casual fans, it's an entertaining style to watch because they score a lot. So yes, it's, I guess, you know, that's, that's why I say like, if I was, if I was Fran or if I was somebody in the Iowa athletic department, I would be taking a look at that and saying, you know, guys, we've just kind of hit a plateau here. And if we want to really bring this thing to the next level, we've got to find a way to break through that. And, and part of that is going to be figuring out how to actually guard somebody because that's going to allow us to real. I mean, honestly, right now between Iowa and Rutgers, the way the programs are currently constructed, which one of those programs would you bet on making a serious push for big 10 title contention in yeah, the no near future. Rutgers. Yeah. Cause they've guard and, and that travels and that's going to, that's going to allow you to have greater consistency. And, you know, so again, it's not, it's not that all oh, I was a disaster of a program. It's just, you feel like if they could just even be mediocre defensively, they'd have a chance to do more and maybe excite that fan base a little more, but it's, we, we have what we have here, I guess. And, you know, it's going to be a challenging game again, just because it's on the road and it's against a team that certainly has multiple weapons that almost got you at Breslin. Um, but it's also a game that I look at and I think Michigan state's got every opportunity to win it if they play well. You know, and I don't, and I don't think they're going to be dealing with the kinds of things that in certain other buildings around the league, make it almost impossible to think about getting a win like Mackey arena. It's just not that. 
Yeah, I think the athletic departments, if they were smart, because I, I think we both agree that when a home court, when you have a good home court environment in basketball, it's worth more than more. Th- I think it's worth more than football. It's worth more than yes. any, any other sport that yes. I'm aware of. I mean, maybe hockey would be one. I'm not sure. I, I can't really speak to that too much. But uh, when you have a cavernous kind of place you're playing like Chrysler or Carver Hawkeye or Value City, it makes a huge difference. And I think really it comes down to not the nature of the stadium or not really even probably not really even the nature of the fan base, but it's, it, it is entirely dependent on where you have the students and how many students you have. I, you've seen that transformation at Northwestern where they've gone from, you know, basically it's like a, it's a neutral court at best yeah. at Northwestern oftentimes where now if you pile a bunch of students and they got nothing to do except they love, it's a big experience for them. It's, you know, fun. You put them by the court. You look at Michigan state at Breslin, the entire court is circled outside of one or two small sections by, by students and right. they go crazy. They're making noise the entire game. Right. And that's what you, that's the, when you say you, you notice that at Caraca, that is absolutely the difference when they're, when the team's not doing well or they're, you know, they're not always making noise and at Izzo and there's always, you know, they're present. And right. the same thing you see at Mackey or you see it, uh, you know, for Illinois, those students are engaged and they're, they're having fun. They're just at a game and they're making, they're making, you know, making things loud. And it makes actually a better experience for those who are season ticket holders. So even if you're someone who's like donated for a zillion years or something and you've got, you know, 10th row seats, you're better off going up to the 25th row and having those students in the first 20 rows because it's going to be a much more fun environment for you to go to, even though, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not. He- you want to see them win or do you want to have a great sight line? Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I think so. Yeah. And, and I think you, I think you make a really good point and that, you know, it comes down to, how an athletic department views this stuff oftentimes. And it seems to be, you know, for a variety of reasons, there, there seems to be only so much enthusiasm at Iowa. I also, I'll admit, I've wondered, and this is, you would solve this problem by doing what you're talking about because kids don't have these memories. But I, I've wondered during this Fran era, um, if, if the Iowa fan base believes that it's entitled to more, um, I take a longer view because I've been paying attention a long time, you know, Iowa basketball under for God, almost a 20 year stretch, maybe just shy of that under Lute Olson and then George Raveling and then Dr. Tom Davis was nationally relevant. You know, they didn't win a ton of big 10 titles. In fact, I think they only won one. I think, I think they've only been to one final four in that stretch. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. But, but Iowa was in the conversation. Iowa had national names. You know, they had guys that were, that were known quantities as national players. They were a team that was talked about in the big 10 title mix more often than not, they were talked about as a team that could make runs in March, you know, even if they didn't always do it, they were seen as that. And they recruited very differently than they do now. And really very differently than they have for a generation. You know, they were, they were, I was able to come into the state of Michigan and take guys that everybody wanted. You know, when, when I was at high school, well, even before that, when I was in yeah. high school, you know, Roy Marble senior mm-hmm. and, uh, and BJ Armstrong in the same class, those guys weren't sleepers. 
They were guys that everybody <laughs> and their brother wanted. And Iowa came into Michigan and took them. Now, were they doing things that weren't within the NCAA rules to help some of that along? Sure, they were. But my point is, if you're an Iowa fan and you're and you're someone who say around my age and you grew up with that being Iowa basketball when you were younger and you've been faced with even what Fran's program has been, where they've been good, they've been competent, but they're never really confused with a legitimate having a legitimate chance at winning anything uh, significant. What does that do to your enthusiasm? It's it's hard for a Michigan State fan at this stage to relate to it because we've we've been in the we're in the midst of a 25 year period where yeah. and I, and I think you see the part of the reason I'm saying this is I think you see the reaction from some quarters of the fan base to the last two years and then this one being the third year where yeah they've been an NCAA tournament team and they've won some big games and there have been some nice moments but they haven't really been in the mix as of yet. The book's obviously not closed on this season. They haven't been in the, in the mix to really do anything major. And you see how it, it stuns me, but it really shouldn't how spoiled certain corners of the fan base are and what the expectations are like. And I've wondered if that's kind of, if just the enthusiasm just got bled out of the program through the Alford years and the Licklider years, and, you know, now, yeah, they've had competence, but that's not enough to move the needle back. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know it too. And, and all I know is like, you know, when you look at the student section there, they're behind the basket and that's where they, they put the students. And, yeah, that's terrible. And I feel like, we, and I feel like when you watch and, and the thing about that stadium is you could go all the way up to the back and it's a, it's a big arena. It's just one level. It's just like, just one, you walk down into it. It's a, I heard Tim so Stout you can go back criticize that for years. Yeah, I think <laughs> that was the biggest I think mistake it's actually cool. Iowa made. Well, here's the argument. His argument was what you end up doing is you're devaluing a certain number of seats because at Breslin, for example, you've got the lower bowl seats, but then if you're in the first few rows of the upper bowl, you still feel pretty good about your seats. Whereas in Iowa, it's one class. And so you get in the upper reaches of that thing and it psychologically, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but I understand that I've just heard him make that point over and over and over that they made a mistake the way they built that thing. Well, I can tell you one mistake I made is that I agreed to my friend to run stairs at Carver Hawkeye Arena, <laughs> and uh, that yeah. was a definite mistake. I did, I think, like three of them, and I was about ready to die. And that's back when I was young, and uh, much better shape than. So, than so I it's now. a. I, I have not been to a game at Carver Hawkeye. It's a bowl, correct? Like you go yeah. in mm-hmm. on the upper level and you walk down. Yeah, you walk down. So yeah, it's like, if you go up to the just t- like the upper Ann level Arbor, is the street level, the football stadium. Yeah, the, uh, could be i've actually yeah i mean although i think at ann arbor you can still walk up obviously you come in and you can go up in the stands but yeah yeah carver hockey you just walk in and you walk and so you could like we would sometimes run around the inside of the outside of it you know when it's like i don't know for just a run or whatever and they would be practicing down on the floor like i remember seeing steve alford down there with his team um, right so yeah you could just walk in and out of the arena i mean i don't know i suppose it's not like that anymore <laughs> times have changed but um yeah, but you'd walk down to your seats and such. But, I, and I think you know when you look at other arenas like Ohio State, and I, I watch a lot of these games, and the students aren't b- by the court, right? But the ones you do see them, 
Rutgers, Purdue, Nebraska, Illinois, Michigan State. It makes a huge difference. It like, does. I don't know why everyone doesn't do that. Because it's, a, because it just, it's, it's a big it's a big point of tension in some of these athletic departments for the reasons you suggested. It's the tension between doing what they know will produce a better environment and satisfying the people that donate money. And that's the tension yeah, that you've got I to guess, negotiate. I guess. It, yeah. No, it is. I think it is. Oh, I, no, I know it is. I, I just like, I just don't think it's a good argument. Because I, I, it's, I don't it's such a better, so much better product. Yeah. Being there. Yeah. But you know, and, and look, some of it too, you have to be honest with it. Some of it at, at some of these schools, you know, Ohio state's a good example. I don't, I don't think Ohio state as a, as a sporting culture in around that school cares enough about basketball to make something like what you're talking about a priority. I just true. don't, yeah. you know, yeah. Michigan didn't for a long, long time. And a little bit of that got changed during beelines period. He changed a lot of things positively in that program. And that was one of them where they, they were able to get the student section and, you know, it's a half-assed student section, but still it's better than it once was. And in terms of where they're positioned, it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, they are right on top of you. Um, you know, you can kind of see the places where basketball matters culturally, you know, a place like Purdue, a place like Illinois, it matters. Those schools want to win in basketball. They emphasize it. They care yeah. deeply. So they are more pro Michigan state has become that way. Uh, again, through Tom Izzo's efforts as much as anything to turn sure. it into that. Um, but now it's entrenched. You would think whenever the day comes where he's no longer the coach, the next guy is going to inherit that same situation. That's not going to go away. You know, just like painter did with Katie, right? Exactly. Purdue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but you see this also like Nebraska and Rutgers are great examples. I mean, Nebraska, not by any stretch of imagination, would you say it's a basketball school? No. No. Yet they have a great environment there. I mean, and the yeah. terrible teams, and yet right. they still seem to have it be having fun as a student at the game and as a good environment, which they you know they pull out that's, some games sometimes. That's a that's a place where if they ever manage to get it right, I think that could become a good home court for that reason. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's the the bottom line here is yes, it's a challenging game, very challenging, but I think it's one where the same way I looked at Ohio State. And the same way I looked at Michigan, which, you know, frankly, we know Michigan State was right there. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. It's winnable on the road. It's one you look at and say, yeah, we can go. We have a chance to go get that game. It's not this pit of despair that some of these, a few of these yeah, other places Mackey. are. Yeah, right. 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 Absolutely. Mostly Mackey. All right. Well, the game. <laughs> well, the game is Saturday. Uh, we'll be back after that with a postgame analysis. Again, I encourage you to go to nudgeprinting.com. 20% off your purchase if you enter Final Four into coupon code. Also, contact Kurt Stauffer and his team for Brothers That Just Do Gutters. They do fantastic work. You can find that at brothersgutters.com. And also, the like I said, the email will be on the uh, podcast. So make sure you check those guys out. They're sponsored the show, and you guys are great. And a little programming note, we have two things coming up that are of interest. One is after the game for Iowa, we're almost certain we will have – uh, Coach Mark Garland, Mike Garland will come on again to give us a post-game analysis of what went right or went wrong in Iowa City. And then on Monday, 
So I'm not sure when it'll come out, either Monday or Tuesday. We have a bracketologist coming out. We're going to talk about a little NCAA tournament seating and how the whole thing works and I guess where Michigan State and the rest of the Big Ten and where the team that everyone lives in about, what, 10% of every Michigan State fan's brain uh, rent-free is Michigan and what they're up to and how their chances look. So stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the show if you've not already done that. And until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go Green. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.